Waiting on the Lord. It's uh, often easier said than done. I think if you've ever tried it, you probably know that. Particularly if you've ever waited for something that you knew was right. You knew it was what God wanted for you in your life. And you knew that your will was a, a reflection of His will on the matter. And you're ready for that next step in your journey. Except that whatever it was that you were waiting for wasn't happening yet. And so you pray and you fast and you pray some more and, and you plead with God and you check off all the boxes that you need to in order to be prepared for that next step and still nothing is happening. And it is in those critical moments in our lives that we often come to a crossroads, a pivotal moment where we have a choice to continue to wait on God for the answer to whatever it is that we're waiting for. Or we can try to manufacture our own solution. And I could write a book on this subject because I think historically in my own life, I've been the king of make it happen. Uh, probably some of you are wired that same way. When, they, when the answer to that need or the direction for that next step in your life doesn't come immediately, you roll up your sleeves and you get busy making something happen. Uh, I think the same people... Uh, those same people usually have a, a very low tolerance for a lot of talk about doing things, and we place a very high value on getting things done. And so don't feel bad, first of all, if you are wired that way, because um, you're not alone. In fact, I'll just volunteer right now to be the president of that club. And we also shouldn't feel too bad about it, because the, the fact is God made us that way. Okay? We tend to be very productive people, and that's all great. Where the problem comes in is when we become so driven and so overly confident in ourselves that we allow our self-confidence to become self-worship, which is exactly what we're doing when we force things to happen in life without patiently waiting on God first. We are effectively in those moments saying to God, we don't trust you enough to wait on you to act, so we're going to take care of it for you. Like, uh, like somehow we're doing God a favor but what is actually happening is we're moving and striving, we're acting outside of His will because we tend to be very impatient people by nature. So that's my personal moment of confession to you <laughs> this morning. If we were Catholic, I'd be in a booth right now. Uh, but we're not, so that's the best I can do. I'm fairly certain that many of you can probably relate to what I'm saying right now, and if not, just smile and nod your head, and I'll feel a lot better about this message today, all right? But we're going to talk about waiting on God this morning, because that is what James is talking about in our text today, as we continue working our way through James's letter in our sermon series, James the Just, with a message entitled, Waiting on God. And as we work our way through the first half of chapter 5 today, we see James, as he so often does, presenting these two opposite uh, perspectives from within the church. It's, it's really evident at this point in his writing, if you've been going through this with us, uh, that this is a pattern that James follows as he addresses these Jewish Christians who are scattered about the ancient Mediterranean world. And some of them have become so influenced by the secular culture around them that they've adopted many of the attitudes and mindsets of those in the world. And now they've carried those attitudes and mindsets into the church. And in the process, many abuses were happening. And so James presents both sides of this picture as he tries to direct them back to the way of Christ. And so as we go this morning, it would, it would serve us well 
to reflect on those things in our own lives that we may be waiting on right now. Maybe it's a, a new position at work or a new ministry opportunity. Um, maybe it's a new relationship. Uh, we have a lot of single people here. Maybe there's a desire to be married and you've been waiting on God to bring the right person into your life. Whatever it is that you're waiting for right now, as we reflect on this portion of James's letter, ask yourself, am I truly waiting on him for the answer to that need? to that desire, to that next step in my life, or have I been trying to force the issue myself? Because what you'll find, if you discover that you have been trying to make something happen instead of waiting on Him, what you'll find, if, if you're honest with yourself, is that there may indeed be something more that He's wanting to accomplish in you and in others around you, those that you have influence over, before He takes you to that next step in your life. But we sometimes get so focused on what's next that we neglect what He wants for us now. And often that uh, circumventing of, of that process of what is needed in our lives today will leave you ill-prepared for tomorrow. And so it is of really uh, utmost perform, uh, importance that we learn to wait on God in everything so that His process of developing and preparing us comes to full maturation before we move forward to that next place in life. Because if we rush the process out of our own impatience, we walk right into that next leg of our journey with all of the same deficits and immaturities that we had in the previous chapter. When we do that, what we often receive is something less than God's best for us. And so we can go through life thinking that we're really hitting it out of the park, you know, like we're getting it done for God, when all the while we're actually falling short of God's ideal for our lives because we failed to wait on Him for His very best. And so it's imperative, guys, it is imperative that we learn to wait on God even when we're not seeing the results that we desire, when we desire them, even if we believe that we're completely prepared for the road ahead because we may find in the waiting, that there is yet more that he has to teach us. And that is precisely what James is trying to teach us this morning as well. So let's pick up our text right where we left off last week. And we see what James has to say here about waiting on God. Okay, James chapter 5. We'll start with the first six verses. He writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, it's nothing like a little James to cheer you up in the morning, right? <laughs> you can never accuse him of beating around the bush. James, in classic James style, goes straight for the jugular here in the opening of chapter 5 as he levels some very harsh accusations against some of the rich. These were, these were wealthy landowners who controlled much of Galilee at the time and who were also among the Jew and Christ, uh, Jewish Christian churches outside of Palestine that James is writing to. And he starts out with, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And if you'll remember from last week, if you were here, James in the last uh, chapter 
had just thoroughly developed this idea of our uh, need, the need of Christ followers to learn to live in radical dependency on God and on each other. And now he's addressing those who are living in the opposite manner, those who are living independently from God and others. And he refers to them in this first verse simply as you rich. But as you keep reading, it becomes clear that he's not simply referring to those with a lot of money. Okay, in fact, he's not even including all rich people in this uh, category. We know that Jesus had uh, many wealthy disciples. Zacchaeus was a rich uh, tax collector. We see that in Luke 19. Um, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who put Jesus' crucified body in his own tomb in Matthew 27. Uh, Barnabas sold his own land and gave it to the church in Acts 4. So this rebuke by James was never intended to be an indictment against all rich people. Okay, As we see in the following verses, he's calling out those rich people who were wicked, not only wallowing in their own wealth, but abusing it to their own sense of pride and luxury and oppression and cruelty. And he says, weep and howl. And that's Old Testament prophetic language that James borrows from Isaiah 13.6 and 15.3. And it's in Hosea 7.14 and uh, Amos 8.3. It's a warning of the judgment that is coming against them if they continue on their path without repentance. And then he goes on. He says, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Okay? James is describing people who didn't want to wait on God for anything. They wanted it, they wanted it all. And they wanted it right now. And they were willing to do whatever it took to get what they wanted, no matter who they had to run over in the process. These were incredibly presumptuous people. And that, rather than wealth alone, is really at the heart of James's rebuke here. He's talking about their sinful presumption. Okay, When we, in arrogance, we assume that we know how to best proceed in life, particularly in major decisions and, and with dealings with others, without waiting on God and his guidance first. That is presumption at its worst. And that's exactly what these people were doing that James was writing to. In verse 3, he says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. And that phrase, you've laid up treasure, is the Greek word theseridzo. It means living your life day by day and as you heap up or amass riches for yourself. And that can be, uh, by the way, in many forms, not just money, although that's certainly included in James' description here. These people presumed that they could take care of themselves, that they could uh, somehow create their own independence by amassing enough money and supplies and resources to see them through this life. But as usual, what happens when we begin to think only about ourselves, and we try to obtain everything that we want for ourselves, inevitably... At some point, someone or something in our path gets in the way of that. And so we just bulldoze our way right over them when we're presumptuous to get what we want instead of patiently waiting on God to meet our needs and provide for us in His timing and in His way. It is the very height of arrogance when we pursue our every desire without any real regard for God's will or God's timing on the matter, or, or the other people who may be hurt by our own presumptuous decisions. And it's only a matter of time. It is only a matter of time when we live like that before someone close to us gets hurt. 
James is pointing that out. He says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you, meaning the righteous person does not avenge himself, uh, which, by the way, comes directly from the teachings of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 38 and 42. James's whole letter is essentially he's repeating Old Testament scripture and quoting the teachings of Christ. So when we presume to know what's best for ourselves... And we set out to have what we want, how we want it, when we want it, without patiently waiting on God. We not only shortchange ourselves in the end, but we also inevitably bring down upon the heads of those that we love the most that which is less than God's best. You see, our kids, our friends, our families, they're the direct heirs of all of our major decisions, both good and bad. And so before you rush into that new relationship or pursue that new job or run to another church or begin directing all of your resources towards stockpiling or amassing things for yourself, consider the effect that that may have on your family and on your friends, on those around you. Because sometimes the human cost of our own presumption is a debt that has to be paid back for all of eternity. Think about that. Whether it's our eternity or theirs. In verse 3, James says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. When James talks about evidence against them, it's a reference to the final judgment. And when he says that that evidence will eat your flesh like fire, that's a, a direct reference to the eternal fires of hell. Revelation 20, 13 through 15 says, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, okay? It doesn't get any more serious than this. And then verse 4 of our text, James says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's another reference to our judgment and the Lord himself as our judge. Okay, I would, I would much rather wait on God now than have to answer to God then for a life of arrogant presumption that hurt those that he put in my life for me to care for. Right? And when we read passages like this, they seem so extreme, and of course they are extreme, but because of that, I think it's easy for us sometimes to think this doesn't really apply to us, and hopefully they don't. But to be honest, I don't have to think too hard or too long before I can pinpoint some decisions that I've made in my life that were really all about me with little to no regard for those in my life that I'm supposed to protect and nurture and disciple and look after. And some of those decisions not only yielded no benefit for those uh, other people in my life, but they were actually detrimental to them. And in each case, if I'm honest with myself, I can see as I look back where I pulled the trigger on a decision before allowing God first to move on my behalf. That is the very definition of presumption. When we think we know enough or know better than to have to wait on God for the answers to our needs and our desires. And unfortunately, uh, this is what was happening in the churches that James was writing to as well. So in the next few verses now, James shifts gears and he shows them the better way. All right, let's read it together. Verses 7 through 12. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So after a sharp rebuke uh, for those who are living so presumptuously, James describes those who live with great patience. And he paints in what is my uh, opinion, one of the most beautiful pictures in all of scripture of the one who patiently waits on God to provide an answer for a need in their life and trust in faith that God is in fact working toward that answer even when we don't see any evidence of it at all. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And just before we talk about the picture of patience here that comes by faith and trust in God, I just want to mention that the reference in this passage to the early and late rains should be taken literally. That's how James intended it. There are uh, people who teach that the latter rains in this passage is an allegory. Uh, for a latter outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible does teach us that there will be a profound outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days. That's in uh, Joel 2, 28 and 29, and Acts 2, 17 and 18. But that is not what this passage is referring to. And the reason that matters is because we don't want to take away from the equally important message that is being conveyed in this part of the letter about the need for us to learn to patiently wait on God for all of our supply in this life. In the, in the uh, Palestinian climate of the day, the early and late rains um, were in, um, or the early rains came in late October or early November, and then they were essential to softening the ground for plowing. And then the late rains came in late April or in May, and they were essential to the maturing of the crops before harvest. And so even though three-fourths of the rainfall came between December and February every year, these two particular rains, the early and the late, were the most critical to the success of their crops. And so the picture that James is painting for us here is the fact that the farmer had to wait for this particular rainfall twice a year. And although there was absolutely nothing that he could do to make it rain, he didn't lose heart because he trusted God in full faith to provide exactly what was needed, exactly when it was needed. And because of that, the farmer continued to work the ground, right? Even though there was no fruit anywhere in sight. So if you take a person who knows nothing about farming and they've had no exposure to a, a farmer's fields and you, you take them to a farm just after planting and you show those fields to that person, all that they're going to see are big, flat, dry tracks of dirt, right? Seemingly worthless ground, just big empty stretches of dry dirt. But if you ask the farmer to describe those big empty, seemingly lifeless tracks of dirt, he'll say, well, that's my corn over there, right? That's my, my tomatoes are over there. 
my beans are over there, and so on. Both people are looking at the exact same thing. One sees a lot of food, and the other sees a whole lot of nothing. What's the difference? The difference is faith. The farmer trusts in faith that the food is going to come, even though there's no visible evidence of it yet. And yet the person who has no experience farming has no reason to believe that anything good will come out of that dry stretch of dirt. And so to the unbeliever, the farmer must appear to be very foolish because he goes out every day and he does really strange things. Like he pours perfectly good water all over that dry dirt. To the unbeliever, the farmer is just making mud. Right? But the farmer keeps working. He tills that ground and he fertilizes that ground and he protects that ground from predators and everything that would try to dig up the ground and steal what has been promised to the farmer. And he does all of that without any visible evidence whatsoever of that which he believes is coming. So he works toward a future promise and he nurtures what has yet to be realized in his life. And above all, he waits. He waits patiently for the part that he cannot control or manufacture himself. You see, there's, there's an element uh, to growing food that is entirely up to God. We cannot create life. Only God can do that. We protect and nurture and feed and water and then we wait for God to do his part because it is he alone that can bring the result. And it must all seem a bit insane to the unbeliever, but to the farmer, he knows that what is promised will come and he also knows that in order to make the very most of that promise, he must work to protect it and nurture it and feed it and water it, even though he cannot see it. It really is a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a magnificent representation of the one who waits on God. And yet James takes it even a step further. In verses 10 and 11, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Right? So James recognizes and points out the fact that patiently waiting on God sometimes means more than simply waiting. It can mean a lot of activity, and at times it involves suffering as well. Charles Spurgeon once said, A man to whom it is given to wait for a reward keeps up his courage, and when he has to wait, he says, It is no more than I expected. I never reckoned that I was to slay my enemy at first blow. I never imagined that I was to capture the city as soon as I ever had digged the first trench. I reckoned upon waiting, and now that has come, I find that God gives me the grace to fight on and wrestle on till the victory shall come. And patience saves a man from a great deal of haste and folly. You see, sometimes suffering is a part of patiently waiting on God. And yet this is so often the point in our lives when we take matters into our own hands. And rather than continuing to wait on God for the answer that we seek or the provision that we've been waiting for, we take action on our own. We, we run off in another direction to try and relieve some of the suffering or find some of our own answers. And James says, listen, consider Job. Right? If you've ever read Job's story, you know that he's the poster child for human suffering. And yet he waited on the Lord, remaining steadfast. Steadfast. What does that mean? In the ancient, word, uh, in the ancient Greek, that word is hupomeno. It literally means to remain. It's the, it's the opposite of running away. 
of running off. It's staying put and patiently waiting on God to provide the answer. And by the way, when James says be patient in verse 7, the word patient there is the Greek word makrothameo. It means to be long-suffering. So, although in no way does James sugarcoat this idea of patiently waiting on God or, or say that it is necessarily pleasant, he does say about those who remain, those who were steadfast, that they were considered blessed. And of course, the ultimate example of remaining steadfast under trial and the blessing that follows is Jesus Christ, who submitted himself to a horrible death that we might have new life and that in abundance, right? Suffering is never pointless. I know that it seems that way. It can sure seem that way, especially when you're in the middle of it. But there's always a reason. There's always a benefit on the other side of it. David Gusick writes, If a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength and count it a tragedy if he succeeded. Yet if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I welcome both him and the knife. Let him cut me open even wider than the knife attacker because I know his purpose is good and necessary. Okay, listen, whatever you're walking through today, it is not the end of your story. In fact, in verse 11, James points out that when you do reach the end of whatever trial you're going through, that the Lord will be revealed in your life as compassionate and merciful. You may not always see His compassion and mercy in the midst of life's storms, but when you make it through to the other side of that, you'll be able to look back and see the hand of God in your life during that time. Again, Spurgeon said, when God shall give you a rich return for all that you've done for him, you will blush to think you ever doubted. You will be ashamed to think you ever grew weary in his service. You shall have your reward. Not tomorrow, so wait. Not the next day, perhaps, so be patient. You may be full of doubts one day, your joy sinks low. It may be rough, windy weather with you and your spirit. You may even doubt whether you are the Lord's, but if you have rested in the name of Jesus, if by the grace of God you are what you are, if He is all your salvation and all your desire, have patience. Have patience, for the reward will surely come in God's good time. Whatever you're going through today, listen to me. Whatever you're dealing with today, it is not the end of your story. You may be suffering. We suffer in loneliness. We suffer in sickness. We suffer in pain. Sure, we suffer in confusion and depression and, and lack of every kind. And you may be looking out at the landscape of your life right now and all that you see are long stretches of dry dirt. But I'm telling you, better yet, James is telling you that if you will remain waiting patiently for God to act, to answer, to move on your behalf. And, and waiting is not the same as inactivity. By the way, there's much for us to do while we wait. We tend to that vision of the future, that need that is yet to be met, that answer that we're still waiting on as we feed on God's word and our souls are strengthened. We bathe our lives in prayer and our spirits are refreshed. We remain in his presence and our minds are renewed. And then we wait. Patiently, we wait. Long suffering, we remain. 
And even though life at that point may look like nothing more than a dry stretch of dirt, even though we may not be able to see a sign of something good in the future, listen, underneath the surface, God is fast at work doing what only He can do. He's creating new life for you. It's going to bring an abundant supply, not only to you, but to everyone who is blessed enough to be near you at that time in your life. When the harvest of your steadfastness comes at the end of that wait, you see, your story is still being written. It's just happening beneath that dry dirt. And so it's okay if people think you're a little crazy for being filled with hope and anticipation for the future because although all that they can see is dry, empty ground, you look out and see fields of new life in abundance once the rain stops and the sun comes back out. He is a harvest. He has a harvest of good things for each of us as long as we remain patiently, steadfastly waiting on God. I can't 